Amen. All right, well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to the book of James. We're starting a new series today that will lead us, uh, really, we'll do it for several weeks, um, probably into August, maybe even the beginning of September, where we look at the book of James and we'll, we'll just do a, a couple of verses at a time, but we're going to be looking at kind of some help for the hurting, uh, which is what James is doing. He's writing a letter to a people who are suffering, and so we want to we want to listen in. We want to listen in to what God is saying through his servant, James. So James chapter 1, and today we'll just do verse 1. So let me read it together with you. We'll put the verses up on the screens here and also online as well. So James chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to each of our hearts. Every single person, both that's gathered here in the wedding garden at the tree farm and people who are watching online at home today and later, Lord, we believe that your word is powerful and effective. So Lord, we're asking that by your spirit, you would help each of us to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in a more profound way. Lord, we want help and we are hurting. So we ask God that you would use this time today in this series to help us navigate these difficult days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at the person who wrote the letter. We're going to look at the people who the letter was addressed to. And then we're going to think a little bit about what the purpose for the writing in the first place. So the person is a dude named James. He writes this letter and he says, hey, I'm James. I'm writing this letter. But we have to ask the question, which James? Uh, Ash and I, my wife and I, we were talking about it recently. Um, actually, this week, we were talking about how parents, when you have a kid, you get really creative. Ash works in the pediatric unit and the NICU unit. So she sees kids all day long. And one of the things that's just you know, noticeable is that parents feel this obligation to come up with very creative names that they, they kind of look around and they go, Oh, I wonder. And they, they, you know, in some cases it feels like they just made up a word. Like that's not even a name, but they come up with this very creative idea for what their child is going to be called. And, you know, they think, you know, it's unique and it's beautiful and all these different things. And they probably imagine that they're the only ones and their kid is going to be the only one with this very special, creative, inventive name until day one of preschool. And then they come to find out, hey, Mike, they come to find out that um, that, that very creative, innovative idea is shared by like four out of the 20. You know, they come to preschool and they go, oh, there's a bunch of them, you know. Uh, oh, the Harrison. Oh, there's multiple Harrisons in your class. Um, and that's just one of the realities. So when we come to this letter by a guy named James, we recognize that there are multiple Jameses. That in the New Testament itself, there are at least four who maybe wrote this letter. And we don't have to get into all the details of why certain ones probably did or didn't, but, but most people agree that the person who wrote this letter, the James that this is talking about, is actually the brother of Jesus. Now, Jesus, he was born of a virgin, uh, but then, as it turns out, Mary must have had more kids because Jesus had brothers, and James was one of those brothers. And we find out early in the story, during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we find out that James isn't a believer. 
that he saw his brother and he observed him in all these ordinary settings. And then when, when, you know, people started talking about him being Messiah, he was like, I don't buy that. In fact, in John, the gospel of John chapter seven, verse five, it reads like this for even his talking about Jesus, even his own brothers did not believe in him. James during the ministry of Jesus looked at what Jesus was doing and who he was and who he knew him to be. And he said, yeah, I believe that that dude exists, but I don't believe him to be my God or my savior. But something changed in James. Something radically changed in him so that as the story unfolds, we find him not only early on in the story, we find him after the fact. In the book of Acts, which kind of tells the story of the church after the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ, we find James is a leader in the church. In Acts 15, they have a council, they have a meeting where they call together all these different people and they have to discuss certain kind of heavy ideas. And we find out that right in the center of it, Acts 15, James is the voice. He's the spokesperson for the Jerusalem church, which is a big deal because Jesus said, this is my mission and it's all gonna start in this hub of Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And James is right there at the center of this movement of the followers of Jesus Christ. And he's a leader in that movement. So how did that happen? How did he go from saying, I don't believe in him as savior, as Messiah, as Lord, to being a leader, a key leader in the church? Something dramatic happened to him. He became a person who was well known for his belief in Christ. In fact, tradition has it that he got a nickname that because of the way that he lived his life and he demonstrated his faith, people began to call James old camel knees. They would call him old camel knees. We've got a, a camel here at the tree farm. So after church, you can go visit with Amos the camel and you can look at his knees and you'll notice that on Amos's knees, on the camel's knees, you will find these huge calloused nubs huge places on the knees that are, that are just, you know, developed layer and layer and layer of skin. Now, James was known as old camel knees because he was a person of prayer, that he was a person who literally assumed a posture of prayer, of kneeling with such regularity that people said, you're that guy, you're camel knees. You're that guy who's always praying. Not only that, tradition tells us that he was martyred for his faith that he so believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that he was telling other people about it, even in the hostile religious and political environment. And that led to his execution. History tells us about his martyrdom and it was not, a, it was not an easy one for him. So how did this person, James, go from being an unbeliever to being a very committed, diligent leader in the church and follower of Jesus Christ? And I think part of the answer comes in how he describes himself. Look at what he says. I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a servant of this person, Jesus Christ. Uh, Alec Motier in his commentary, he talks about how, how the language actually works. And he says, yeah, the English translations, they do an okayish job, but really they could have put it like this. They could have said, James, a servant of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. 
It's not just that he's a servant of these two different entities. He really is a servant of Jesus Christ, who is God and is his Lord. We, we notice then that what James has done is he has placed his faith in Christ and he now considers Jesus to be his master, his Lord, and he considers Jesus to be God. Isn't that exactly what happened with Thomas? Thomas was one of the other disciples. And after the execution of Jesus, all the disciples were kind of scrambling and trying to piecemeal things together. What happened? I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Savior. And then he died. What does that mean for us? And, and then Jesus, you know, he comes back from, from the dead and he meets with some of the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. And so they relay that information. Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive. And Thomas says, I've got my doubts. And unless I see him and touch where I saw those nails go through his hands, I don't know if I can just buy into that idea. And so Jesus presents himself to Thomas and he says, Thomas, look on me, touch me, see that I'm real. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. It's an expression of worship, but it's also a confession of faith. It's acknowledging who Jesus really is. He's, Thomas is saying this, Jesus, you are God and you're my savior. That's what James is saying here. He's saying, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, who is Messiah. He is God and he is my Lord. And he's describing himself in this way. And it's interesting then, right? That if he's the half brother of Jesus, why doesn't he say, hey guys, I am, this is James writing to you guys, by the way, remember me, I grew up with Jesus. Like I knew him, I saw him, I, I, I observed him and I now follow him. So, you know, you should, you should listen to what I have to say. He doesn't even mention that. It's a non-issue for him, which is pretty unusual because normally what we do is we drop names. We, we try to, you know, hey, I'm Corey Williams. Uh, you know, I know so-and-so. And we try to make some kind of connection so that we have a hearing with people. Like uh, Christmas time out here, this place is slammed. And because I do pastoral work, I'm not out here a whole lot, but I come out to help. And then sometimes uh, my parents will say, hey, why don't you guys come out and have dinner? And so we come out, but during the tree season, dinner isn't just like sitting around a table. It's sitting in the lodge eating cafeteria food. And for me, it's always really awkward because I'm only here, you know, all these employees are kind of running around and, and I'm here, you know, here and there, but, but a lot of them don't even know who I am. So I go up to the counter and I'm like, huh, this is a conundrum for me because, you know, I, I live, I've grown up here. This is my farm. Do I need to pay for my food and for my family's food? And so what do I do? Hey mom. Hey, oh, is that your boss? That's my mom, right? Like I'm looking for opportunities to try to let people know my connectedness to the tree farm. Now, James doesn't do that in his letter. He's not trying to, you know, name drop of his privileged relationship of growing up with Jesus. And he's not opposed to using the word brother. In fact, it's one of his favorite terms. He uses the designation of brother multiple times in this letter. Chapter one, verse two. Chapter one, verse nine. Chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse 15. Chapter three, verse one. Chapter four, verse 11. Chapter five, verses 12 and 19. Brother is one of his favorite terms. Brothers and sisters is one of his favorite things to say. But when he talks about who he is and how he considers himself, he doesn't say, I'm a brother of Jesus Christ. No, he just leaves that out entirely because the significant reality 
is that he has related to Jesus by faith in him. I am a slave. That's what that word means. I am a servant of Jesus Christ, my God and my Lord. Now, I want you to recognize why this is so important. When, when we think about who Jesus is, we need to have that sort of relationship with him. That we don't just think about, you know, I'm a Christian, I go to church, but we actually relate to Jesus on the basis of who he is and what he's done. And it really is then a level playing field for anybody. In fact, Peter, another apostle, when he wrote his letter and he was introducing himself and the people to, who, to whom he was writing, he puts it like this. This is 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. He says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. An apostle says, I'm writing a letter to ordinary Christians, but there's something really incredible about them. They've received this righteousness by their faith in Jesus Christ, and they then have this faith that's just as precious as any of us, as any of our faith. Meaning, the, the, the significant reality of a Christian is not some privileged experience, but it's an experience that anyone can have. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And so when James writes, he's saying, he is my God, he is my Lord, he, I'm his servant. And I want to encourage you, I want to ask the question then, is he your Lord? Is Jesus your master? Again, a lot of people, if you were to ask them what they think about Jesus, they would probably say, I kind of like the dude. You know, he's a great example to follow. Um, you know, I go to church. I, I, I consider him significant. But the real question for authentic believers is, have you surrendered your life to him as a, as a Lord, as a, as a ruler? Do, do you consider him not just to be a helpful person, a lot of people, in my estimation, go to church, call themselves Christians, but have never really surrendered to Christ. They've never really treated him as king, as Lord. They, they like his input. They want him to be kind of a consultant and a coach and a person who can wield his power on their behalf. But, but man, Christians are people who actually say, I surrender to him. So now every decision that I make, is run through the grid of what does my master desire of me? I'm going to do his bidding. I'm, the choices that I make, how am I going to spend my time today? Well, I want to figure out what does the Lord want me to do? What are the things that I should give my time and energy to? What is it that the Lord requires of me? What should I do for work? What, is, what are the doors that my Lord has opened to me? But we need to be a people who have surrendered to him, who can say along with James, he is my God and he is my Lord. I'm his servant. My entire life is committed to learning about him, finding out his will and his ways and, and allowing my life to come into conformity to that. And I hope that that's your experience. I hope that you have experienced salvation in a way that results in the Lordship of Christ for you. So James is the writer of this letter and he helps us to understand true Christianity. Now, secondly, who are the people that this letter is addressed to? It's really the people of God, but it's described in a, in a pretty cool way. It says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's who James is writing to, but that's actually a, a fascinating way to describe the people that he's addressing because he's talking to Christians. He's writing a letter as a Christian leader to Christians, but he's using all of this language from the Old Testament. 
the people of God had 12 tribes. When they were exiled, when they were removed from their homeland, they were called the scattered people, the 12 tribes that were scattered. The diaspora is the word. They were these people who were moved away from their homeland and spread out in all these different places. And now James is picking up that language and he's saying to, of Christians, you guys are the scattered 12 tribes of Israel. You are people who have solidarity with all the stories in, in the Bible, all that these people throughout the Old Testament, you have the solidarity with them. You, you are the people of God who have a relatedness to the, the Israelites and the 12 tribes and all that they experienced. In fact, Jane, uh, Alec Motiri puts it like this. He says, better than any other description could, the 12 tribes places the church firmly within the pressures and persecutions of this life. We can think of our ancestral tribes in the storm and stress of Egyptian slavery, redeemed by the blood of the lamb on pilgrimage with God through the great and terrible wilderness, battling to enter into what God had promised and struggling ever after to live in holiness amidst an environment of unbelief. These are the experiences through which James would have his readers understand their pilgrim path. They're the Lord's 12 tribes and they are dispersed throughout a menacing and testing world. Their homeland is elsewhere and they've not yet come to take up their abode there. So when James talks to the people, he's saying, you are a scattered people, but you are the people of God. And you have solidarity with all the struggles that the people of God have went through throughout the ages. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter for us? We are like them. We're going through a traumatic season right now with a pandemic and political unrest and racial unrest and all these different factors that are in play right now. And we're, we're, we're going through this season and, and we're feeling that uneasiness in our own hearts and souls. And therefore we need God to speak into our situation to help us navigate, to help us figure this stuff out. What, what happened to James's church? He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. What happened to them? If you read about it in the book of Acts, they were scattered because of persecution. Their faithfulness to Christ meant that they, they didn't get to stay put. Their faithfulness to Christ when religious and political hostility arose, it was targeted at the Christians and they actually had to peace out and go to all these different places. And they probably thought, man, I really miss Jerusalem. I really miss our potlucks. I miss having a meal with with my church family. I miss gathering together in that large setting. I miss the Bible studies that James would lead. I just miss that comfort and that familiarity. But now we're in these remote places and we don't see each other very often. And we've got small pockets of people that can get together, but, but we can't gather as a church like we used to. That's exactly the people that James is writing to. And that's very similar to what we're going through today. Yes, there are inconveniences. We are going through trials. So what we need then is the voice of God to speak into this and say, here's what you need to know. Here's how you can be faithful in this moment. So that's the people that, that are being addressed. It's the people of God. It's us. And finally, here's the purpose for the writing. The purpose for the writing. And in verse one, we don't really get the, the whole deal, but we get this initial greeting. He says, greetings. And then he gets after all of these different things that he's going to want the people of God to onboard. He's going to want them to live out their faith. 
It's really a pastoral letter. James is writing as a leader in the church to his people who are scattered and going through trials and difficulties. And he's trying to help them connect the dots between their faith in Christ and how to live faithfully. And he's going to give some very harsh and strong words. He's going to say some pretty hard things, but he's doing this because they're in a situation that they need to know what is it that God requires of us. Doug Mooey puts it like this. The letter implies that these believers were mainly poor people who were caught in a situation of considerable social tension. They're suffering. They're, they're dealing with favoritism within the church. There's disharmony in the church. There's, there's desires that are causing quarrels and fights among them. There's all kinds of things that are going on, all kinds of different factors. And James is going to write this pastoral letter to say, guys, here's who we need to be as the family of God. Here's what it looks like to be faithful right now. And he simply says greetings, which is just a standard, hey there. But then he gets after it and he starts to unload. What does it look like to be faithful to God in the midst of trial? How can you joyfully suffer for Christ's sake? How can you love other people? How can you avoid favoritism? How can you do all these things in a way that's pleasing to God? Now, he says some very challenging things in this letter. And the truth is, I'm just warning you, some hard things are coming up. As we move our way through the first chapter of James, some hard, I will have to say some very hard things. John Newton, the, the uh, writer of Amazing Grace, um, I don't remember if it was in his letters that he wrote to various people or if it was in his work that was on pastoral ministry, but he said this, I am able to say hard things to my church, to my people, because they know I love them and they will receive anything from me. And that reality is something that I'm kind of leaning into in this moment, that I'm going to have to say some things that will offend you in the upcoming weeks. I'm going to have to say some things that are really going to upset you because it's going to be tampering with some of those things that you hold so dearly. But if we're going to be faithful to Christ in this season, a lot of those things we actually have to allow it to come under the allegiance of our Lord. And it means that that's going to tamper with some stuff that we like, that we like a lot, that we worship. But I'm going to say it. And I'm trusting that you're willing to receive it from me because I'm not trying to do you harm. I love you and I want what's best for you. And that's what James is doing here. He's writing to his church and he's going to say some things that are really hard to stomach, but he's doing it because he loves them. That's what we have coming up. So this letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, because he came to believe that Jesus is Lord and God. And he's writing to a people who are experiencing pain and suffering and hurt and difficulty, and he's trying to help them navigate this season. And he's going to say some hard things. So we're in for a wild ride together. So I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in each of our hearts and lives. And we're going to respond with worship in just a moment. But let's take a minute just to kind of lay ourselves bare before this king. Let's ask ourselves, is he really my master? Is my life really reflective of doing everything that he wants? And then let's really ask, am I willing to hear from that master, from Jesus Christ, even if it confronts me, even if it challenges me, even if it disrupts my already disrupted life even more. So let's pray right now. Lord, we ask 
that all of us in here, in the wedding garden, and everyone who's tuning in would place their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would have that experience that James had of maybe going from unbelief, disbelief, to radically sold out to the person of Jesus Christ. I pray for people who are kind of flirting with that decision, that they're just kind of toying with it, and maybe they're thinking, you know, it's going to be, they're going to lose some things. He's going to change some things. And Lord, I pray right now by your spirit, you would impress upon them that they would be trading up. That to surrender to Jesus Christ is the greatest decision that anyone could ever make. So Lord, I pray that people would cross that line of faith, surrendering their lives to Jesus, going public with their faith and baptism. Lord, I pray that we could be a church that's going through these trials and difficulties and we could actually gracefully navigate them that we would be honest about our inconsistencies and some of our evil desires that are leading to quarrels and fights and bickering, Lord, that we would bring all of that to the foot of the cross and find redemption and forgiveness. And then, Lord, help us to move together as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, with faith in Jesus. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen and amen.